This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. Friday, February 16th, 2018, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I now give you the most anodyne gobbledygook in the service of pushing the most chilling lesson that parents and children will ever be made to consider. The Alice Training Institute has updated our delivery model for the Alice response strategies from an instructor-led training approach to blended learning. Now, this is a video promoting the Alice Training Institute. Alice stands for Alert lockdown, inform, counter, evacuate. It's being sold to schools, organizations, and parent groups as a way to arm against the next school shooting. Here, listen to this part. I'll explain what's going on in the visuals. With the blended model, instructor-led training is still used to provide the hands-on demonstrations and scenario drills, which reinforce the ALICE curriculum and help participants practice using these strategies. Okay, what you're seeing is an overweight dude in VR goggles going into a classroom where other gray-haired adults in VR goggles pelt him with red foam balls. Feel safer yet? I learned about Alice when I saw a Facebook reference, maybe you saw it too, from a mother in Redmond, Washington who went to a training. I'll tell you what they told her to do with her kindergartner if there's a school shooting. But first, let's hear an Ohio police officer talking to a class of, I'm going to guess, second graders. I think we can get away from the bad guy. So if there's a bad guy in the building, it might be dangerous to stay in here. So maybe we should think about leaving. Maybe. So the first thing we're going to talk about is maybe leaving the building. I don't need second graders to think about maybe doing anything. I just need them to follow instructions and to feel safe. But then the kids got pretty riled up when the cop tells them, yeah, go ahead and smack and kick a stranger. What if he grabs you? What should you do? Are you, are you allowed to kick at him? Yeah, you're allowed to kick at him. Call the police? All right, you can smack him, you can bite him, you're right. So this is where we are. A policeman working for a for-profit company uses the school day to instruct eight-year-olds to bite an adult, an adult who's wielding a gun. But not just bite. And this takes me back to what they told the kindergartners to do. Now, remember the pelting with foam ball videos? And also, keep in mind another video that's on the site. Anything can be used as a weapon. Here they show a student cowering behind a spiral notebook. Not kidding. Face out and create distance so that you're not one large target. Okay, so on Facebook, maybe you saw the post too. One mom of a kindergartner who received Alice training came to a realization. She writes... The kids are told to run around, to yell loudly, to throw things, wads of paper, just to be a distraction. At first, I was like, really? You think a shooter armed with a machine gun is going to confront Samantha, armed with a book, and say, oh, never mind, I won't kill her. And then it punched me in the gut. If she's face-to-face with a shooter, she's going to die regardless. 
The goal will be for her and her classmates to make their deaths take 20 seconds rather than 10. That's 10 seconds more for other kids to run, for first responders to get to the scene. A lot of lives can be saved in 10 seconds. She goes on, just to be clear, this is the current state of affairs. We live in a country where kindergartners learn how to maximize the number of lives they can save as they're being massacred. Alice says that's not exactly what they're saying to do. I got to say, I watched the videos, a lot of videos. It seemed like a reasonable inference to me. The tactics seem false. Maybe they're comforting for nervous adults, but they seem largely inappropriate for little kids. I do understand one part of the Facebook post that the mother wrote. The phrase, this is the current state of affairs. Yeah, a ridiculous program that people are buying up in droves that tells you to confront a semi-automatic gun-wielding madman with a spiral notebook. And so that is why in the spiel, I will give you some other answers. Not perfect solutions, but my God, first steps. But first, a documentary series on what's called The Loving Generation. It's a good name, right? These are mixed-race children who grew up after anti-miscegenation laws were taken off the books, but before a lot of attitudes had changed. My two guests are both members and chroniclers of The Loving Generation. Hey, Philistine, you know, I wouldn't kill you to know a little bit more about culture. All right. Enough with the hard sell. I've got a delightful podcast to listen to. Yes, it's the Culture Gab Fest. It's out every Wednesday. You'll hear Slate critics Stephen Metcalf, Dana Stevens, and Julia Turner debate the week in culture from highbrow to pop. By the way, two non-mutually exclusive categories. This week, the panel talks about the French movie BPM, about the ACT UP movement working to fight AIDS in the 90s in France, and the new Netflix series Babylon Berlin. German drama set in the Weimar Republic in the 20s. And also what new plagiarism software means for the works of William Shakespeare. Again, what I'm saying here is listen to the Slate Culture Gap Fest every Wednesday. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think the best named Supreme Court case in history was Loving v. Virginia because, well, Loving won. It was the case that overturned, legalized the anti miscegenation. I don't know, Bowers v. Hardwick was good, but I'm going with Loving v. Virginia. So this gives rise to, or at least inspiration for, the title of a new series from Topic Studios called The Loving Generation short films which deal with the subject of interracial marriage and the children thereof. The director of this series is Lacey Schwartz, and Anna Holmes is the executive at Topic, uh, meaning she greenlit this thing. They're both here. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming in. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Lacey, how'd you come to, why'd you want to do this project? Well, this is really a project that Anna actually had the idea to do over a decade ago, right, Anna? Yeah, probably like 20 years ago, now that I think about my age, yeah. <laughs> you just had to wait for what, the internet to get invented? <laughs> I, had, I, I had to wait for like people to catch up to my feeling that it was an interesting subject. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I had like pitched a couple of magazine stories about this very subject, meaning about the generation of kids born to one black parent and one white parent in the years right before and after Loving v. Virginia. And I think that a lot of magazine editors at the time didn't find that particularly compelling. But like, 
this was also a context, a world in which not very many magazine editors were writing or commissioning or editing stories yeah. about race at all. Yeah. And also, they're probably in their 40s. Maybe they look around at their contemporaries, don't see this as a phenomenon. You're in your 20s. Uh, it <laughs> seems much more, at the time, seems much more prevalent. Yeah, yeah. I, I think also as a as a black person, I notice other black people. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the magazine editors that I pitched and dealt with were 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 in a particular milieu that they didn't necessarily tend to break out of. That do often. you have one black parent, one white parent? I have one black parent, and one white parent. My father is African American. He's from South Carolina. My mother is white, and she's from Ohio. And so, Lacey, she so you were essentially commissioned, or was this the sort of idea that was uh, roiling in your mind for a while too? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, I am also. I kind of look at this series as a kind of a for us by us kind of series. I had made a film, which is how Anna and I actually originally connected, called Little White Lie, about my own experience dealing with my dual identity, which is being black and Jewish and family secrets. And when Anna and I actually first connected over that project, because she had been a part of a panel talking about it, and we had talked about it even before topic even existed. Oh yeah, you know, it was this idea of like kind of looking back and you know analyzing how we grew up, but also looking forward and understanding where we are in this world um, and how things have changed or haven't necessarily. Do we actually know if there was an expansion or an explosion of interracial marriage after loving? I mean, yes. because we do. Yes, yes. Like the U.S. Census Bureau has has numbers on that, and I probably should like take out my phone so I can quote them to you. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, the reason I asked if we know, it just seems to me that there was very poor accounting beforehand. What there wasn't great accounting of were the exact number of children born to one white parent and one black parent after loving. Yeah. Like there 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 is definitely data that shows that there was an increase in their numbers what the specific numbers were. In terms of the marriage issue though, yes, there was there was an increase in the number of uh, marriages between one black person and one white person after loving. That we know. Yes, and yes. and and the number between that you saw between 1960 and 1980 had had more than doubled. And I think also the way I would look at it is um when you look at it, and one of the things that I loved about the interviews that we did really gave insight into the fact that like loving came at the end of the civil rights movement and a lot of like the resistance to the civil rights movement was actually to try to prohibit miscegenation, you know, to try to make sure that black and white people did not, in fact, couple and have offspring and have children. So as uh, one of our interviewees Nicole Hannah-Jones says, like, it was not a coincidence that loving came so late in the civil rights movement because fundamentally, whether you know, keeping kids separate in schools, that was a lot of it was about actually making sure that people did, in fact, not mix. Yeah. So much of the earlier gains of the civil rights movement, the argument against it was this subtext of loving. And so then we get to all the subtext and finally by loving, we actually get to the text. We actually get to the the idea yeah. of... Yeah, but, it, but it's not love. just the subtext of the early civil rights movement. It's a subtext around racial discrimination and racism and segregation in general, which is that, you know, like a fear, a fear of... I think black masculinity and 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 black men being in proximity to white yeah. women. Yeah, um, and, and you have that early clip from Birth of the of a Nation, right. which you could have gone earlier, except film wasn't invented earlier. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that fundamentally, it doesn't mean that there weren't people who were in fact mixed previously. We do interview somebody who is again part of the generation, but works at the Census Bureau. And I love when he talks about the fact that you know it's very chicken and egg. So a lot of the changes to the census actually came from activism, yeah. right? It's not that it just comes from the reality. Actually, 
comes from people saying, you know what, I exist. And did I exist previously? Like a lot of these people did exist previously, mm-hmm. but it wasn't talked about. And so a lot of things come with the civil rights movement that should start to allow people to have the you know courage, I think, to actually proclaim that, hey, let's have this conversation. One of your one of your subjects essentially says about her mother, uh, she just doesn't get it, but I think she's oh. trying. Yeah, that's Where, weird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas another one will talk about how privileged she feels to be. It's very rare that she has such a close relationship with a white person. It's very rare, she says, for Mm -hmm. someone for a black black person. person. Yes. Yeah. That's that's Aaron Cloud. Yeah. I am a black woman. I see myself as a black woman, but I also have to be honest. I love my mother. I can't say for many of my black friends that they deeply, intimately, without any bounds, love a white person. And I think that you know, fundamentally, people can feel both of those things at the same time, right? Feel like their their parent may not get it and then at the same time feel this incredible intimacy. And I think that having those conversations about sometimes what can seemingly on paper seem conflicting, but in fact is very much the relationship that many people do have with their parents is really important. How do we actually have these conversations about race on a larger level? Yeah, and I mean... I think that a parent, a white parent not getting it is is different from a white parent purposefully not getting it. My mother's a Trump supporter. We ended up getting into these arguments about Trump. I mean, voices were raised. And then I apologized. That night, I apologized to my mother because of my tone. The very next day, this woman, my mother, the woman who birthed me, put on a Make America Great Again t-shirt. This isn't a huge cohort. It's not a scientific study. But from the people you talk to and from your own experience, do you think the race of the mother or race of the father has an impact on perceptions, uh, has an impact on the kids? You know what I'm saying? If the combination is a white mother and black father hmm. versus a black mother and white father. Yeah, yes. But like, but I don't think we have any like anything but anecdotes to back that up. I mean, I think it's impossible to... Or it would be wrong to say that it doesn't have an effect, but I don't know that I can articulate what the effect is other than that I'm sure it's there. Because, you know, American society has very specific ideas, not just about black men, but about black women. And, you know, those ideas are internalized by many black men and black women. And so it's impossible for me to imagine having a black father and not having understood at a very young age that that society saw him as a threat. And like, what does that tell you as a kid? And like, how would it be different if my mother was black and my father was white? Yeah, and I would say two things about it. I mean, I do think, though, that one of the unique things about this generation is, in fact, actually even the presence of white mothers. Previous to this generation, it wasn't that there weren't people coming out of black and white kind of relationship. But you see that what comes out of that, in fact, is actually a whole movement around a whole multiracial movement actually was founded by white mothers. Hmm. So I do think that white mothers do have a presence in this generation that is really interesting, unique. The one other thing I'll say, though, and which has always been very fascinating for me around people who are biracial with one black and one white parent is that you can actually have within the same families two kids, same exact parents who identify differently. And so I, we had some people within our, um, even within our cohort who said, you know, I am more black identified than my siblings. Yeah. And so it is interesting how much of that for a variety of different reasons can differ. And what, here's my last question, what do you think happens two generations from loving when you, the people, when the people in your film We'll have kids. Well, they're already having like kids. Have kids. I mean, a sure, lot of them already sure. have kids. So, How do they identify? So what I will say about it is, you know, just uh, even more anecdotally than just in this program, sometimes I go out into the world and people will say, you know, I'm 40 or maybe people are 50, have kids ranging from like, you know, 
8 to 18 will say, oh, well, my kids don't see race. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I don't know any people of color. I don't know any black people who tell me their kids don't see race in 2018. Do I think that the mixing will continue, that as we know, identity has evolved in the last two decades so much more than any of us probably ever imagined it would on many, many different levels. Will that continue to happen? Absolutely. How do people define each other? The question to me is not just about identity, but what is actually happening in society. Fundamentally, the question is, how is power going to be distributed? Right. So a lot of people talk about like, in, oh, in 2040, there will be more, you know, people call it where we can be more and more a mixed society. And the question is, well, how are we going to be able mm-hmm. to look at our cultural norms? Mm-hmm. How are we going to be able to kind of balance some of that stuff out? And I think this is a really interesting moment to be asking ourselves that. And I think this generation is in many ways very uniquely suited to, in fact, ask those questions. And I really appreciated what you said before, because fundamentally for us, this project is about asking the questions and ask questions so that we go forward and we have the conversations that we're actually engaging in this content from all different levels. Lacey Schwartz is the director of The Loving Generation and Anna Holmes is SVP at Topic. Topic Topic.com is the place where you can find a series of these videos talking about The Loving Generation. Thank you guys so much. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com and now the spiel if we were to ban or extremely limit the possession of assault rifles let me tell you what would happen and this might shock you, it's that an assault rifle ban would result in death by assault rifles decreasing. Yeah, shocking, right? Because when an item is banned and that ban is enforced, that item, use of that item subsides. It's always been true. Flamethrowers, cocaine, there was a ton of legal consumption of cocaine, then it was banned, it went down. Alcohol, You're probably saying, no, that's not true. Prohibition didn't work. Yeah, it did. Oh, true. People broke the law. Uh, the, The mafia thrived, but it worked. People drank a lot less. Prohibition was bad for other reasons. But as with every ban that is actually enforced, it's just tautological. The use of the banned substance or implement decreases. And we know this about alcohol. We have the statistics about psoriasis. Psoriasis went down during the period when prohibition was in effect. They even looked at per capita annual consumption uh, right before the prohibition era. Good statistics on this. They know how much alcohol was sold when it was taxed. And before prohibition went into effect, it was a little more than two and a half gallons per person. And then afterwards, it was one and a half, meaning a lot of people had just given up drinking. So even prohibition, a ban on a substance, caused less use of the substance. So right now we should consider why we as a country undertake the bad idea of banning booze, but not the good and obvious idea of banning one specific type of rifle. There are five to eight million AR-15 type rifles. I understand they're fun to shoot. They make you feel good. They make you feel protected. Yours might protect you and your family, you believe. But that terrible 19-year-old kid in Florida endangered, in fact, killed 17 other families. And that we don't believe. We know that's true. He was troubled. He had a history of disturbances. And the family that took him in because of this made sure 
that his legally obtained assault rifle would be kept in a lockbox that he had the keys to. The protective power of guns was cited after the Sutherland Springs shooting, 26 dead. Then the good guy got the bad guy. I was watching an old clip of Igor Volsky. He's the deputy director of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. And he's an anti-gun guy. He was on the Laura Ingram Fox show. Uh, the other guest, by the way, was law enforcement expert Mark Furman. Yeah, racist cop from the OJ trial. He's on Fox's Retainer. You knew that, right? So Ingram cites the good guy with the gun in Sutherland Springs, who eventually chased down the murderer. If he hadn't chased him with a gun, shot him with a gun, he may in fact have engaged police or killed others. Do you well, I think we're, we're all thankful that this guy intervened. Absolutely. With a gun, right? He didn't intervene with a powder puff. He had a gun. Yeah, that good guy with a gun, not with a powder puff, with a gun, he was able to intervene just as soon as 26 innocent people were killed. Under my plan, call it the not everyone gets an AR-15 plan, the good guy would indeed have been denied his moment of heroism. Sadly, well, maybe not sadly, because those 26 people wouldn't be dead. Now, I'll admit, maybe some of them would be if he went in there with a handgun or a single bolt-action rifle or a knife or some other weapon that's not a military-esque weapon. In fact, Laura Ingram started ticking off a few methods that people can be harmed. But I think Mark's point is, if you're criminally minded, you will commit carnage. Carnage is on your mind. You're going to do it. You're going to do it with a gun you get illegally. You're going to do a Sarnay of Brothers deal with a pressure cooker bomb. You're going to throw acid on people's face. What, whatever you want to do to commit carnage, you'll get something to do. Yeah. But if that something is something other than an assault rifle, there will be fewer casualties. Perhaps one day we'll be rubbing our hands about all these school acid attacks and all the people they disfigured but didn't kill. Flamethrowers, she mentioned flamethrowers, they're illegal. You know how many people die as a result of flamethrowers? None. But if they weren't illegal, you could be sure that Laura and Mark Furman would be saying, look, there's nothing we can do. People want to throw flame on other people. If you make owning a flamethrower a crime, only criminals will own flamethrowers. We do, but very few people own flamethrowers. And if they do, it is true. They are criminals, but it's nice that we know it. It's as if I don't live in a very large U.S. city with the most thorough gun laws in America and also the lowest homicide rate of any very large city in America, a homicide rate that's lower probably than your city or hamlet or town because it's significantly lower than the American average. Chicago has poorly enforced gun laws. Is that the only city that exists in America? To listen to the gun rights defenders, you'd think so. I've said this before. Let me say it again. New York City's gun laws, think of them like penicillin. And the disease of guns, think of it like scarlet fever or rheumatic fever or syphilis here in New York. Penicillin cures the fever. Now, in Chicago, maybe their gun problem is like cancer, and penicillin doesn't cure cancer. Does that mean penicillin doesn't work? Does that mean penicillin just has been shown to be ineffective? No. No physician who wants to save patients would say, don't use penicillin, because, you know, penicillin doesn't cure cancer. But, doctor, I have scarlet fever. Well, better not try the penicillin. Of course, the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm, and the NRA Oath is a little bit different. It's better you than me. Banning AR-15s 
will in fact not have a huge impact on gun crimes. It will only have an impact on the gun crimes that shock, sadden, and shake us the most. Now, in what other form of public policy do we not try to improve the most galling injustices just because it doesn't improve every injustice? Let's take another form of murder, serial killing. Very small percentage of all the overall homicides, yet we all want to stop them. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we wouldn't. If the Boston Strangler was wielding an AR-15, maybe we'd make excuses to let him strangle. I mean, sure, we'd be against the killing on moral grounds, but you, you can't blame the Boston AR-15 wielder. And what about all the law-abiding stranglers out there? What about their rights? There are no good arguments. There are no good arguments for allowing people to continue and purchase and own AR-15s. They are fun to shoot. I get it. I can think of a number of ways the public can still access them at gun ranges, but not in homes. The AR-15 is ridiculous for self-defense. You wouldn't hunt with it. It's unethical to hunt. I mean, to hunt animals would be unethical. So we've heard about Australia, right? Port Arthur, 1996, 35 people dead, slaughtered, and they took away the assault rifles. The public supported it. The, uh, the prime minister at the time was pretty bold. He pushed for it. Did it work? Well, in the 18 years before Port Arthur, Australia had 13 mass shootings, defined as shootings in which five or more people were killed. In the years since, what's it been, 22 years since, they have had none. Yes, those dedicated to carnage, as per Laura Ingram's formulation, will still want guns. What, there are no people dedicated to carnage in Australia? Of course there are criminally-minded Australians. They just can't get AR-15s, which is why they have fewer dead people in Australia. Less deadly guns, less dead people. It's not tough. Here was Ben Shapiro yesterday showing once more why there are no good arguments against banning the AR-15. In Australia, the gun violence rate has gone down at a lower rate than the United States, despite the gun confiscation. The gun confiscation only took one-third of the guns. That was the gun buyback program in Australia. It's illegal for people to own guns. Two-thirds of the people who own them still own them. That's a mix of the accurate and the inaccurate, but even the accurate illustrates how bad the basic argument is. It's inaccurate that it's illegal to own guns in Australia. You can own guns in Australia. And even though a third of the guns were bought back, only a third, that's right, the semi-automatic ones were, that's what I'm talking about, and that's what affected the mass slaughters. And as far as the homicide rate falling slower than the U.S., he nailed that stat. And who cares? Because the homicide rate started off as a fraction of the U.S. rate, and today, the homicide rate in Australia is about 1.1 per 100,000 people, and in the U.S., it's almost five. Well, I'd rather live in the more deadly place because our rate didn't fall as fast. Who cares? They don't have mass slaughters there. You can't even compare the ratio of mass shootings in Australia to America because Australia is the denominator and that's zero. It's an imaginary number. But yeah, mass shootings are not most of the shootings. They're not even close to most of the shootings. But they are the shootings that trouble us the most. And in a democracy, the government is supposed to address the will of the people. Or at least, crazy idea, at least do the minimum to keep large groups of them alive. And that is true even when faced with horrible, threadbare, unpersuasive arguments and significant piles of campaign cash. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He has been paid to enter a cage on the back of a flatbed truck dressed as Hillary Clinton. I mean, he is, not the truck. 
just senior producer Mary Wilson is all like, you really got Pierre to dress as Hillary Clinton on the back of a flatbed truck? That is, that is genius. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, wants you to know that he personally paid from his own wallet all Cage and Clinton costuming fees. There was no mingling of funds. The gist, somewhere in the Midwest, a 400-pound guy sitting on his bed can breathe easier knowing that he escaped the Mueller inquest. But not that much easier because he weighs 400 pounds and doesn't leave his bed. Also, he's living permanently in Donald Trump's mind. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.